I'm Jade Calloway. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for nearly 10 years now. I was born just two months before Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait in August 1990. In this series, I'm learning all about the 1991 Gulf War by hearing from those who fought in it. It was a, a roller coaster of emotions because there's the excitement and the anticipation of, you know, we're going out to serve Queen and Country. But thrown into that was nervousness, fear, anticipation. That centred almost entirely on the fear that uh, Saddam Hussein and his troops would use chemical or even biological weapons against us. There was a little bit of apprehension, I suppose. It was a bit of wanting to go, but also realising that I was near two years less fit than I was before. I know I'd signed up to this, but I didn't actually think they'd actually call me to go and do it. Being inoculated against things that you didn't really know about became an issue. And actually, had it been tested anybody back in England, when I asked the MOD this, they said there was a pig running around Portant Down that looked extremely well. That wasn't that encouraging. This is Granby, the storm in the desert. Here in the Gulf, hundreds of British troops continue to pour in each day. It's the biggest build-up of military hardware since the Second World War. 53,000 British troops took part in Operation Granby. The trouble was, most of them were geared up to fight Russians in Europe, not Iraqis in the Q80 desert. It was quite a handbrake turn, a switch from Cold War to a very hot, dry and dusty one. Major General Patrick Cordingly commanded 7th Armoured Brigade, the Desert Rats, who despite their nickname, hadn't had recent experience of desert warfare. We had been training in Germany for, well, ever since 1945 to protect the British people against an invasion from the Soviet Union. And for suddenly being told the Warsaw Pact was over, the Berlin Wall had come down, that actually you were going to go and operate in the desert. We had never never prepared to train, train in the desert. What would our equipment be like in the sand? How would we cope with heat? All these sorts of things. Was it going to be hugely different? And the answer was yes, it was. So we had to get on and learn how to cope with all these desert conditions and different sorts of training. BFBS reporter Rob Olver witnessed the build-up firsthand. These troops had never faced anything either on this scale or, or, or this kind of um, operation really since uh, i suppose korea or or something like that the falklands yes that was a, a major operation for britain but nothing quite on this scale and certainly nobody had been to the middle east really since uh, I, I suspect the 50s it was uh, or, or 60s it was a very long time since anybody had been to a place like that lord king was the defense secretary at the time suddenly the ministry of defense went on to a 24 7 basis uh, which we were fully operational uh, round the clock, making sure that we provided the resources, took the decisions, arranged the deployments, and uh, took all the steps that were necessary, which were very challenging, because uh, there was a risk of quite substantial casualties. Retired Army Major Ronnie Harley joined the Army Medical Corps in 1988. Op Granby was his first deployment, but he never expected to go to the Middle East. I joined the, um, the reserves, as they're called now, the Territorial Army, back in 86, when they had that massive recruitment campaign to beef up um, the reserve forces. So I joined at the end of my sixth year in, in secondary school, so sixth form in England. I joined a unit called 205 Scottish General Hospital. So, so I mentally prepared to go and fight the Soviets on an off-German plane. 
uh, and then obviously migrated to the regular army. So the mindset was there that at some point in my army career, I would be fighting the Russians in some form, I suppose. Uh, and here was my big chance to do uh, what Spike Milligan did and uh, make my contribution to the downfall, in my case, of Saddam Hussein. <laughs> the RAF, however, seemed to have a crystal ball. Martin Wintermeyer and Mal Craghill were tornado navigators. I remember when I first arrived on the squadron, my boss, very wise man called Ron Morris, he said, um, don't think about the Cold War, which is what we all trained to fight, you know, to fight the Warsaw Pact or to protect against the Warsaw Pact. He said, don't think about that, it's going to happen somewhere in the Middle East. A year and a half later, here we were. And I remember on a sortie in August, August 6th or 7th, I think it was, we were on a four-ship in the North German Plains, and then we got this message over there, emergency frequency, saying you must return to base immediately. So we did a high-speed dash back to base to find out that the station was then winding up to, to send the jets out to war. My recollection is exactly the same of getting that radio call on the emergency frequency. Hmm. And I was in some air combat with American F-15s from Bitburg at the time when that call came through and we had to scarper home and bring all the jets back. And for me, it's a similar experience that they didn't really know who was going to be going. So August and September were relatively quiet, just doing an occasional air test on an aircraft that had been prepared for deployment to make sure it was all in good working order before it went. What nobody really realised was that the Combat Ready Declaration was Combat Ready Cold War, Hence the workup sorties that we had to do to go out to the Gulf. There was all sorts of stuff that suddenly everyone realised hadn't been done, like air-to-air refuelling and complicated night tactics and the like that had to be learned. And very few people had done a lot of those things. So, you know, some of that was quite challenging. But yeah, we were initially quite excited, then disappointed, then excited, and then absolutely terrified. <laughs> also heading off from Germany was David Garrigan a corporal who'd be commanding a tank in 3rd Troop B Squadron of the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars. He told me there was a lot to do before leaving for the Gulf. The preparations for the tanks was like nothing that we'd ever seen. It was trying to get every tank up to the highest of standards, trying to get the newest tanks we would get. So we ended up doing a lot of swapping of tanks to get the newest models, the newest marks that we could from around BAR as it was at the time so just trying to get the latest tanks and then getting them fitted to the highest standards that we could and then of course painted because they were painted for uh, Northwest Europe and we were deploying clearly where that sort of uh, camouflage would not have worked well. There was a lot of stuff getting painted. My dad was an engineer in the RAF and was stationed at St Athen at the time. He's told me that everything from the jets themselves to ground equipment and even the aircraft steps were coming through to be painted in the now infamous desert pink, which sounds like something you'd find on a Farrow and Ball paint chart. So incredible work. And then also on top of all of that fitness, going for runs, the gym and, and so on all the time again to try and get our fitness levels up to up to scratch. And then, of course, personal admin, making sure people's wills were, were sorted in insurance and all that sort of stuff that, again, we'd never really given much thought to. We then had to um, really focus on and make sure we had all of that sort of stuff. And then a couple of really good parties before we left as well to make sure that everybody was really integrated in because we'd also brought some as part of the whole process we had a squadron came in from another regiment the 1721st lancers and each squadron had one troop of 1721st lads came with them and we were we were extremely lucky that the troop that we had 
were just fantastic lads and really integrated into the squadron extremely well. But nonetheless, having a few beers together and having a party is an even better way to make sure that integration really works. Nothing quite like a party to get to know your brothers in arms. And what's the other key personal admin to arrange? A haircut, of course. That made for some memorable pre-deployment preparation for Karen Sanders Crook, a Lance Corporal nurse from British Military Hospital, Munster. Oh yes, that's a day that will stick in my mind because I got into a lot of trouble that day. I asked one of my colleagues, Michelle George, her name was then, to trim my hair for me with a set of clippers and horsing around, as you do when a group of people get together, the clipper slipped and I ended up with a tyre mark down my head. So I deployed with a grade one and I can vividly remember we were all getting together to get on the transport to go and the matron at the time spotted me from across the other side of where we were all congregating and I just got the look in the finger and over she came and stood there and said, take your berry off. And I took my berry off and she just looked at me. Oh, talk about the stink eye. So I will remember that morning until the day that I die because I deployed with the grade one. As it happened, it was probably the best thing that could have happened because with all the sands and everything, there were a lot of people with long hair, um, beautiful hair that it really got matted and it took its toll on their hair. And I didn't have that issue, (laughs) but it was either that or deploy with a big tyre mark down the middle of my head. When we did go out, we went to... To 33 Field Hospital before we deployed forward and we had to stand for a line of inspection and the briefing and everything before we went and I think it was Colonel Lynch if I remember rightly and we're standing in line and he's walking along and he got Colonel Kennedy with him which was the matron that had given me the rift in before we flew out and she was elbowing him and I was thinking oh no oh no I'm really going to get it and he stood in front of me and he looked me up and down and said When we go to war, there are some things that we have to prepare for. And then he looked me straight in the eye and he went, and a grade one is definitely one of them. And I was like, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So in the autumn of 1990, British forces began deploying in their thousands to the Middle East. Senior aircraftsman Simon Crimp was part of the RAF's mobile catering support unit. We were sat packed in the plane there and... uh, you know, you're a young guy and you've got a rifle between your legs, your helmet on your head and so much ammunition bulging out of your combat jacket. You know, you hadn't experienced anything like this. You felt like you're really going to war here or things could really be happening because at that time everything was unexpected. We didn't know how things were going to progress. And we ended up uh, flying out to Saudi Arabia. Riyadh was our first stop prior to our departure We uh, didn't actually know where we were going until the day before they told us whether we were going to Cyprus, Saudi, Bahrain or different places. Rather than a few hours by plane, it was a slightly longer commute for the Royal Navy. Robert Hunter was a petty officer on board HMS Heckler, a hydrographic survey ship heading out to support the minesweepers. You would go to um, Gibraltar, through the Mediterranean, we did stop at Sicily for one night, and then it would be through the Suez Canal. We'd probably have stopped in Portside to pick a pilot up to take us through the Suez Canal. And then initially, if I'm correct, we went to Abu Dhabi. That was our, our first port of call in the Persian Gulf. 
I'm Lieutenant Colonel Tim Purbrick. I was a tank troop leader in the Gulf War. Well, I remember flying down in the cockpit of the jet that flew us over to Saudi, uh, it flying down the Nile in, um, and looking out at the scenes over the pyramids, over Cairo, uh, amazing scenes. And then we landed a couple of hours later in Duran and it was hot. It was smoking hot. We arrived um, not far off dawn, probably at Al Jubail port where we were assigned a large um, hangar next to the side of the dock, which was to become our home for the next few weeks. Major General Patrick Cordingley was the man in charge. It was a fascinating business of arriving and wondering not quite what to do next. No one was going to tell me what to do next. I didn't even know what outfit we were going to join and join with. And when you consider how important that was, because we needed food from somewhere, we needed water, we needed fuel, and we were told we were going to work with the American Marines. Well, that was a surprise. It was a, a very interesting thing to be told to do. But then what were we actually going to do working with the Mer American Marines? What, how were we going to get out into the desert and start training? We found it very easy indeed. I mean, I think, you know, when you consider they had full generals there and I was a mere brigadier, I was treated rather like a sort of young, young brother. And they treated the brigade like that and really wanted to look after us and make certain we had everything we wanted. The real clincher of the benefit that got on is when they came to the Marine birthday, when they wanted to celebrate it, and they discovered that we had lots of bands and, and their instruments with them, and we could help them with this celebration. That was a real bonus. We really got on well after that. At this time, the so-called special relationship was extremely close. John Major was Prime Minister. I was present at some of the meetings between David Craig, who was our commander uh, here, and, um, and Colin Powell. And they exchanged information that politician talking to politician would have had to have been dragged out of both sides with great difficulty. There was an immediate level of camaraderie and trust that was very, very unusual, and I was very struck by that. I love the fact that British military bands came to the rescue of the US Marine Corps. However, were trumpets and trombones the most essential pieces of equipment? Hmm. When we were sent out there, we didn't have the right kit at all. We didn't have the right uniform, the right sort of boots. And, and in our tanks didn't have the right equipment inside those as well to cope with all the dust. And so we felt really rather, not unloved, but sort of unprepared. And we didn't have the right sort of food as well to start with as well. So it was, it was, it was an interesting time, but the country and everybody set about sorting these problems out for us. And we felt that we knew that industry in the country, we weren't going to be let down. We were going to get the right kit eventually. And actually it didn't really matter if you were wearing desert camouflage to start with or not. You just felt rather better and rather smarter if you were wearing desert camouflage. However, Former Defence Secretary Lord King was a bit concerned about the wrong trousers. I'd heard some rumours that we might have a bit of a problem. And then I discovered that actually, two or three years before, somebody had said, well, we're never going to the desert again. That's uh, what we used to do in the Second World War. That won't happen again. And we'd sold all the uniforms, or a substantial number of the desert uniforms. And of all people, we'd sold them to the Iraqis. Wait, what? And of all people, we'd sold them to the Iraqis. So Saddam Hussein had a lot of our uniform. You couldn't make it up, but all was not lost. Lord King knew exactly where to go for a nice pair of khaki combats. 
that British High Street favourite, M&S. And so I rang up the chairman of Parks and Spencers and I said, uh, I found we were 7,000 short of trousers. Uh, and I rang up the chairman and I said, where do you go to for trousers? And he gave me some good advice. I got in touch with the company and we did, uh, the company that he thought could really help us. And within not much more than a week, we had 7,000 pairs of uh, desert uniform trousers. And then the trousers that went out, went out looking as though they knew where they were going and as though uh, they were properly equipped to go there. But according to Ronnie, it was all a bit of a scramble. And the day-to-day was, uh, was just a question of, you know, making sure that our kit was ready. So we didn't have anything when we arrived because we were the add-on unit. The 4th Armour Brigade was an afterthought, um, I think, for the operation. So we were very much the poor, poor relation. Army were late in, in seven brigades' eyes. So we were rushing around to get things, you know, ship-shape, um, you know, ammunition, weapons, in our case, field hygiene equipment. Because we were, our, our job was really to um, make sure the force didn't get ill, so outbreaks of disease, fly infestations, all that sort of stuff, that the water supply was portable. But we had nothing to, um, nothing to protect the force with because the kit hadn't arrived. And then there was a lot of trips down to Algebile where the, um, the freight was coming in for us. So the tanks, the armour, the vehicles, pest control equipment, in my case, um, and finding it, physically looking for it, and loading out the trucks and taking it back up to use it. As soon as the kit arrived, it was time to put those Challenger tanks through their desert warfare training. Easy enough in a big open space like the desert, right? Wrong. It sounds stupid, but almost every area we wanted to go and fire our tanks in or fire the warrior armaments in, there were camels. And of course, camels belong to somebody. And if you go and kill a camel, you've got to pay for it. The whole thing has to be carefully managed. You didn't want to upset all the local Saudi Arabians. And then we came across another extraordinary fact that if we fired our tank guns, for instance, the ricochet with a bullet would go up to something like 12,000 feet an aircraft flying overhead to go towards to go towards Kuwait and, and Iraq might be hit. So what are we going to do about that? How are we going to de-conflict with when the aeroplanes were going backwards and forwards to when we could fire? And these became very complicated issues. It sounds stupid talking about it now, but they really were difficult issues to overcome. And as Lieutenant Colonel Tim Purbrick remembers... The tanks weren't designed for the desert. The dust was a problem. It was a problem for every every type of vehicle that was out there. And we had a number of modifications that were introduced to improve the quality of the tanks. And that went from new radiators to and filters to take out the, the dust before it got into the ingested into the engines. We had side armor plates added to the vehicles Several times we had, we had problems. Some people had new packs put in their vehicles, new generators, new sprockets, new tracks. Because when you're using the tanks in the way that we were using, a lot of track mileage was used up and that means that bits go wrong and need replacing. So many of the tanks in West Germany were stripped of their parts to be able to get us out on the road and keep us on the road in the Gulf. And on top of the breakdowns, there was a much more serious problem which played on the mind of the commander of the Desert Rats. It was a very interesting situation that arose over the ammunition in the tanks because I was suddenly warned that the bag charge, that's the bit that goes behind the, the bullet that actually comes out at the other end, was very volatile. And what I had to do, I was told, was to separate inside the tanks the bag charges with leaving a space in between the containers they sit in, a space in between. 
And what, what concerned me, and I wasn't to tell anybody, no one was to know, and what concerned me was if I gave the order to everybody to restow their tanks with these gaps between the bag charges, they're not stupid. Tank soldiers are not stupid. And they would know something was up. So I thought to myself, this is a real problem. I'm not going to give an order to do this to happen. So every time after that, that we went on training and firing live ammunition, my heart was in my mouth thinking if something goes wrong and one tank hits another and this happens and the tank blows up, this is going to be an appalling situation. Thank heavens it never happened. Another worrying aspect ahead of the conflict was the threat of NBC warfare. That's nuclear, biological or chemical attack. Saddam had form. He'd used chemical weapons in his campaign against the Kurds in northern Iraq in the 1980s. Chemical warfare was not unknown to us because we had done MBC training through all our military careers. But suddenly when it was for real, it became rather frightening. In fact, everyone I spoke to wanted to talk about those jabs. One of the things that I can recollect the most, obviously, and I'm sure a lot of people will be able to relate to this, was the standing in line with your arm out on your hip for your vaccinations. And we were getting vaccinated for everything because we didn't know what the threats were. I was inoculated with anthrax, whooping cough and bubonic plague, all in the same arm, all on the same day. When I went on watch at midnight, I felt like death. If you look at anthrax, it was a very painful inoculation. You had to have three of them and you felt very ill. And then bubonic plague, nobody had heard of it since the Middle Ages. And actually, had it been tested anybody back in England? When I asked the MOD this, they said there was a pig running around Portland Down that looked extremely well. That wasn't that encouraging. Before we even left Germany, our arms were like pincushions because of the amount of jabs that we'd, we'd had. There were medical stations on either side of us and you just walked down them. It was like a corridor and it was one in one arm, one in another arm. Until you got to the end where you had to sit down for a few minutes and uh, if you didn't keel over, you went back to work. And some, like army nurse Karen, were on both sides of the vaccination process. Yes, and that was funny in itself, you know, the big roughy-tuffy soldiers, it, you know, we used to have a big laugh because obviously there's a lot of people that have got phobias against needles and we had to have a lot of needles at that time. It became a real issue when we knew not only that we had to deal with anthrax, but we had to deal with bubonic plague and how were we going to persuade the soldiers actually just as people are now being persuaded with COVID-19 injections, that these injections were absolutely fine. And on top of the vaccines, Commander Nobby Hall, who was on board RFA Argus, remembers taking the pills. We were told when the war actually started to start taking the nerve action pre-treatment tablet, NAPS tablets. I took them for two days and stopped. They made me, they just made me ill. And David Garrigan says NBC training took on a whole new level of importance. One of the things that stuck with me was that we always probably paid a little bit of lip service to things like the gas chamber and stuff like that because, you know, we all thought, yeah, well, that probably won't happen. Leading up to the Gulf, it's the most attentive I've ever seen any troops when it's come to the to the gas chamber and NBC training because we were very aware that that was a distinct possibility. We thought at one point we had come under a chemical attack we went to full action stations and we were wearing chemical suits, which, as you can imagine, in that heat, 
closed in in an ops room with all ventilation turned off and we sat there in full chemical suits, gas masks on for about three hours while we waited for the teams to go round and check everywhere to make sure that we hadn't actually been contaminated because the chemical alarm had gone off. So we're all fully zipped up in these suits with thick rubber gloves and headsets on, trying to carry on doing our jobs, which we did. And again, very proud of my team for that. They fought through that very nicely. And then at the end, you have to do, when they say, come in and tell the captain, that he, they, the uh, decontamined teams come in and tell the captain they believe the ship is clear, someone has to do what is known as the sniff test. So someone has to take their respirator off and take a deep breath. And if they don't fall over, then you know the air is clear. And as the officer in charge, that fell to me. So I had to, uh, one of those, um, as we put it nicely, half a crown sixpence moments, I had to take my gas mask off and sniff the air. Fortunately, all clear. By the end of 1990, British forces, along with troops from 38 other countries, were ready to fight Saddam. But what about the families left behind? Next time on Granby, the storm in the desert. This is BFBS, the British Forces Broadcasting Service in London. For the next 30 minutes, music and messages for the British forces in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf on Operation Granby. I always remember the snap of a bluey as you opened it. It's engraved on my memories. We used them. I mean, everybody used them. There were thousands of them coming into BFBS. We never played all of them. We couldn't. There were too many. Families back in Germany really didn't have much of an idea visually how the place looked and, and what they were doing day to day. And, and that was part of our role. My wife was out in Germany and there was a really good network there. And especially the ladies on the four ships all sort of were quite tight together and then the squadrons were quite tight together. And they were looked after and had regular briefings and regular meetings with you know, coffee and stuff to keep them up to date. Hello and um, very good afternoon to you, Prime Minister from a sunny Germany. The main question on everybody's mind, obviously, is how long is it all going to last? And... Uh, how long do you envisage that this will go on? Well, frankly, I wish I knew the answer to that. I can't give you a clear-cut answer to that. I wish that I could, for I understand very well the distress there must be amongst the families. This is a BFBS podcast produced by me, Jade Calloway, and Jess Bracey, with interviews from our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden, and our editor is Josella Waldron. Waldron.